0: Well, after you've put your songbook away this morning, get your Bible, please, as we engage in a study from God's Word in this portion of our worship to God, and go to the book of Proverbs. Will you please go in your Bible to Proverbs chapter 24? I want to begin this lesson by reading some scriptures from the wise man Solomon. This is in the Wisdom Literature, Proverbs, the 24th chapter, beginning with verse number 30. In Proverbs 24 and verse number 30, the wise man wrote these words. He says, I passed by the field of the slugger and by the vineyard of the man lacking sense. And behold, it was completely overgrown with thistles. Its surface was covered with nettles and its stone wall was broken down. When I saw, I reflected upon it. I looked and received instruction, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Then your poverty will come as a robber and your want like an armed man. I want you to notice very carefully what Solomon is saying here in these verses. Notice very carefully what Solomon says. He passed by at a time in his life. Notice he says there was a time in his life. When he passed by a field, he says he passed by a field of a lazy man. He says he passed by a field that he knew was owned by a sluggard because it looked terrible. It looked neglected, it was messy and and overgrown and full of weeds and thorns. And they probably even had insects destroying the crops. Solomon says that from the owner of this field, he learned a very valuable lesson. He says he learned the value of hard work. He says he learned the value of discipline and diligence and even persistence. I got to tell you that when I read the words of the wise men in this chapter, I can't help but think about our yearly theme as a congregation of God's people in this place. For those of you who are members of this church family, the Mona Vista church family, then hopefully you remember what our theme this year is as a church family. Remember our theme this year is hand to plow. Hand to plow. Remember, with this theme, our shepherds are trying to motivate us to focus on fields. They're trying to motivate us to focus on spiritual fields. They're trying to urge us to diligently labor in the various fields that we are stewards over in this life. Fields like the field of the heart and the field of the family and even the field of the church, like we're going to be talking about today and for the next three months. You see, like all the other fields that we've considered so far this year, like the field of the heart and the field of the family, the field of the church, specifically the field of the local church, it also cannot be neglected. It also cannot be under the stewardship of people like this lazy man described in Proverbs chapter 24. It also cannot be tended to by lazy workers who are not emotionally invested in God and Jesus and evangelism and edifying worship and growing strong leaders and relationships and establishing a strong foothold in their community. This is something that the Apostle Paul really wanted wanted the Corinthian church to understand Based on what we read in our scripture reading this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, going back to where our scripture reading came from this morning in 1 Corinthians 3, remember in that those scriptures that Brother Caleb read for us this morning, as the Apostle Paul spoke to this troubled church in Corinth, as he spoke to this church that was divided and was full of all kinds of spiritual problems and an effort to bring them back to center and get them focused again on God and His work, the Apostle Paul described the church in three specific ways, working backwards in that text. Remember, in verse number 16, he described the church as a temple. He described it as the temple of God, the place where God's presence dwells with His people. In verse number 9, he also describes the church as a building. He described it as a spiritual building where Jesus is the foundation of that spiritual building. And then also in verse number nine, he described the church as a field. He described it as a spiritual field. He says that as the church, as the church, we, we are God's field. We are God's spiritual field we are God's fellow workers in his field who have a responsibility to provide produce spiritual produce that brings God's glory the bible says in addition to the church being a temple and being a spiritual building it is also God's field the question though is is how do we properly tend to the field How do we properly tend to God's field? How do we properly tend to the Monta Vista field so that we can grow and thrive and prosper for many years to come and not fall into the same condition of the sluggers field described in Proverbs 24? Well, as we began talking about that very thing this morning, I want to suggest that like the previous two fields we've talked about so far this year, like the field of the heart and the field of the family, the field of the church properly tending to the field of the church begins with planting the right seed. It begins with sowing the right kind of seed. It begins with sowing the right kind of seed in God's field. In fact, there are at least five seeds. At least five seeds that we got to continually plant and sow in God's field if it's going to grow and thrive and produce a harvest that pleases God. And here's the first seed right here. The first seed that must be continually planted and sown in the field of God, which is the church, particularly we're talking about the local church this morning. The first seed we got to sow is we got to sow the seed of truth. We got to sow the seed of truth. Are you back in 1 Corinthians chapter 3? I want to, for the sake of emphasis, reread some of the things Paul has to say there to the Corinthian church. If you remember, and I know you do because many of you are great Bible students, you know that the the Corinthian church was a troubled church. You, You know that, right? That was a church that had all kinds of problems. I mean, we may think we have some problems going on in, in local churches today, but I promise you, very few of them have, are not even close. They're not even close to the kind of problems that was going on in the church at Corinth. The church at Corinth had some real spiritual problems. They had all kinds of problems, and at the foundation or the core of many of their problems was, well, it was division. This was a divided church. They were particularly divided over preachers, fighting over their favorite preachers in the church. And the Apostle Paul had some things to say to them to help them grow up and mature when it comes to their thinking. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and in verse number four, in verse four he says, when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? What well, then is Apollos, and what is Paul? servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. Now watch verse 6. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you as the church, You are God's field, God's building. Now notice here in these verses how the Apostle Paul describes the work that he and Apollos did among the Corinthians. Notice how in these verses Paul describes the work they did as planting and watering. He says that he and Apollos planted and watered seed. They planted and watered spiritual seed. They planted and watered the same seed that Jesus talked about in the parable of the sower. Do you remember the parable of the sower? Remember, in that parable, Jesus tells us exactly who the sower represents and what the seed represents. Remember, Jesus told us that the one who sows is the teacher and the seed is the word of God. The seed is the word of God. The word of God is what Paul and Apollos planted and watered among the Corinthians. In fact, this is something that we find being done in local church fields as early as Acts chapter two. Go on your Bible back to Acts chapter two. I really hope you've been keeping up with this Bible reading and Acts this year. It is very encouraging. I've been learning a whole lot this year, and I hope you have as well. In Acts chapter 2, remember, there in Acts 2, we read about the beginning of God's field. We read about the beginning of the church, the establishment of the church. We read about in verse 41 how the church began with 3,000 people believing in Jesus and repenting of sin and being baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And then in verse number 42, we see what the early church, particularly the Jerusalem church, did. In Acts 2, and verse 42, it says that they were continually, notice, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, some of your translations say that they were devoting themselves to the apostles' doctrine. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, that's the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. Notice how when it came to the early church, the first Christians in Jerusalem The scripture says that they continually devoted themselves to teaching. They continually devoted themselves to doctrine. They continually devoted themselves to inspired revelation that was being given by the Holy Spirit to the apostles. That's another way of saying that these early Christians were devoted to scripture. They were devoted to the word of God. The truth, the seed which comes from God. Go to Acts chapter 4 and verse 4. We see the same thing. Do you remember this? A couple of weeks ago when we read Acts 4. and Acts 4 and verse 4 it says, But many of those who heard the message. What message? The seed, the word of God. Many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of men, that's adult males, came to be about 5,000. Look over Acts chapter 5. You remember this last week? Acts 5.42. Acts chapter 5 and verse 42 says, and every day in the temple and from house to house. This is this is in the worship assembly and outside of the worship assembly every day in the temple and from house to house. They kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Look at Acts chapter 6. You're going to read this this week after this issue with the widows being neglected is solved in the church so that the apostles could continue preaching and praying. In Acts chapter 6 and verse number 7, it says, the word of God, the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Now, there's so many other verses that we could read from Acts to make our point right now, but I think just from these, you you get the point. I think from these verses, you clearly see That when it came to the church, the Lord's church in the first century, the main thing that the Bible emphasizes about them more than anything else is their devotion to the word of God. It is their devotion to the truth. It is their devotion to scripture, which is also the Bible. You see, if a church is going to grow and thrive and prosper and be all that God wants it to be, it must be grounded in the Bible it must be grounded in preaching the Bible and teaching the Bible and building up the saved and drawing the lost unto Jesus with the Bible the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3 that God caused growth and he produced New Testament Christians in Corinth when he and Apollos planted and watered the seed which is the Word of God Sowing and watering the seed, which is the word of God, was the mechanism God used to cause growth in local churches 2,000 years ago. Not like you see today. Not gimmicks. Not pizza. Not coffee. Not donuts. Not sports. Not yoga. Not theater performances and singles events. And other forms of recreational activities, while a lot of churches across the valley and across the state and across the United States of America use those kinds of gimmicks to draw people into themselves and fill their pews. Notice how in the Bible we find people being drawn unto God through his word. They're being converted unto God through his word. They are using the word of God as the standard for everything they do in the church. You see, when the word of God, when the Bible, when the truth, when the seed is the emphasis and the foundation for everything that's done in a church. Well, guess what? Then that church can know with 100 percent certainty that they're glorifying God. Then they can know with 100 percent certainty that they are doing things right. They're doing things not their way. Instead, they're doing things the Lord's way. They're drawing people unto God the right way through the seed. They're worshiping the right way. They're doing the right kind of work with the Lord's money. They are appointing qualified men to be their leaders. They're practicing church discipline. They're growing spiritually. Most importantly, they are promoting the right plan of salvation. You see, if we don't get this right, nothing else we do, nothing else we do as a church matters. We have to start here. If we are going to plow God's field properly, then we got to sow the right seed. We got to sow the seed of truth, which is the word of God. But not only must we sow that seed. Secondly, we also got to sow the seed of unity. The seed of unity. Will you go in your Bible, please? to Ephesians chapter 4. And let me just say that this is, to our visitors here this morning, this is a united church. This is a church that is one. This is a church that is made up of people who love each other, people who are brothers and sisters in Christ. But every now and then, even we as a united church need to remind ourselves of what the Bible has to say about unity. And so we go to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse number 1. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Notice in those verses we see that when it comes to this point right here, when it comes to unity, when it comes to the seed of unity, that is a big deal. That is a big deal to God that is a big deal to the holy spirit in fact it is such a big deal to the holy spirit that the apostle paul says here that as a local body of believers we have to be diligent to preserve it we have to be diligent to maintain it we got to work hard to keep the unity we have here because that unity is fragile i'm reminded of what we find in acts chapter 4 and verse 32 Remember in Acts 4 and verse 4, we read that verse. The church at this time in Jerusalem has at least 5,000 males. That means he could have had up to 10 or 15,000 Christians in it when you count the women and the young people who were Christians. And yet, despite that, notice how the Bible says in Acts 4 and verse 32, and the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. Notice that language. Let's highlight that language, one heart and one soul. They were of one heart. And one soul. The idea of being one heart and one soul means that this church was united. It means that this church was one. It means that despite having thousands and thousands of people in this church, they had a remarkable peace and fellowship and unity among them. The early church here was a unified church. They had the seed of unity. The question is, how do we achieve that and not only achieve it, but maintain it? How do we walk in their footsteps even today? We're going back to what Paul said in Ephesians chapter four. Notice how Paul says that unity, unity from God requires that we have the right kind of character. It requires that we have the right kind of hearts as Christians. It requires that we have things like humility and gentleness and patience and tolerance, not towards sin, but towards the cultural and personality differences that are found in the church. We got to have tolerance for one another in love. It also requires being in agreement on the core aspects of the gospel that Paul mentions in verses four through six. The core aspects of the gospel are are things like us believing that there's one body, one universal body of saved people, one universal field, which is the church. And there's one Spirit, one Holy Spirit, and there's one hope, and there's one Lord Jesus Christ, and one source of our faith, which is the gospel, and one baptism that God authorizes today, which is water baptism for remission of sins, and there's one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. Let me tell you something, my friends. We may not all agree on everything as God's field on this place. We may not all agree on trivial things like politics or sports or food, or hobbies, or music. We may not agree all on those kinds of things, but we have to agree on these things right here. We have to agree on the core aspects of the gospel. We have to agree on the seven ones that are found in Ephesians chapter 4. When a church is in agreement and in harmony on the seven ones of Ephesians chapter 4, when they are in agreement and harmony on the core aspects of the gospel, guess what? they are then gonna be getting their unity from the right place. They're then gonna have unity from the spirit. They're gonna be able to make a powerful testimony to the world about God. They're gonna be able to show the world that God is so powerful and Jesus is so powerful and the gospel is so powerful that it can unite people and make them a family despite their racial, cultural, background, economic, and political differences. The gospel can unite people like us when we allow it to do what God says it can do. It can also, it can also keep us together. It can also make it so that we continue always working together. You know, unfortunately, I know far too many, and you probably do as well. I know of far too many churches in this country who were at one time strong and they were vibrant And they had big, beautiful buildings, and they had hundreds and hundreds of members and young family and teenagers and small kids. And they had a lot of money in their treasury, and they had elders and deacons and multiple preachers. But guess what? They no longer exist. They're no longer churches anymore. They had to close their doors because they majored in the minors. Because they couldn't get along. Because they allowed the devil, the evil one, to use petty fusses and petty issues to divide and conquer them. They allowed differences over things like the color of carpets and church building designs and website designs and parking lot designs to distract them from the main thing they should have been doing, which is spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ and winning souls for the glory of God. So many churches fell right into the devil's trap. And it's interesting to me how when we go back to what Paul said to the Corinthian church, for those of you who are familiar with 1 Corinthians, Despite all the problems they had, and they had a lot of problems, despite their fussing and their fighting and their division. For those of you familiar with 1 Corinthians, you know that Paul never one time told them that the solution to their problem was to split up. He never told them to split up. He never told them to break up. He never told them to divide up into three or four little small churches sprinkled throughout the city of Corinth. Instead, what Paul told them in 1 Corinthians is they needed to grow up. They needed to mature. They needed to put God first, stick it out, stay together, plant the seed of unity, understand that you're stronger together than you are divided. So, if we're going to properly plow God's field, which is this church, the Monte Vista Church, what we're talking about this morning, we got to keep planting the seed the truth. And we got to keep planting the seed of unity. And then, thoroughly, let me go this direction. We got to also plant the seed of courage. Got to have some courage. Will you go in your Bible, please, to Revelation? Revelation chapter 2. I want you to notice what Jesus said to the church in Smyrna. In Revelation chapter 2, and we look at what Jesus said, beginning with verse number 8. In verse number 8, Jesus said to the church in Smyrna, verse 8, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the first and the last, who was dead and who has come to life, says this, I know your tribulation. I know what you're going through. I know about your persecution and, and your poverty, but you're, but you're rich. They were poor physically, but rich spiritually. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Look at verse 10. Do not fear. Notice, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you're going to have tribulation for 10 days or a complete amount of time. Be faithful until death. Be faithful, even if it means you got to gotta give your life for the cause of the gospel and I will give you the crown of life. I want you to notice the first three words of verse 10. The first three words are do not fear. Do not fear, Jesus told this church going through Roman persecution. That idea there, do not fear, shows us that Jesus is trying to urge his people at this time to have courage. He's trying to urge them to stand up and be strong and be courageous as they live in a time where many people were hostile to their faith. This is actually Something that we find God commanding his people to do all throughout the Bible, right? I mean, how many times do we see God telling his people to not be afraid and to have courage? He tells Moses this. We're studying about Moses. Well, God tells Moses this and he tells Joshua this. And he told the children of Israel this. And he told the prophets this. And he told Peter this. And As we keep reading the book of Acts, we're going to see him tell the apostle Paul this. This commandment to not fear and have courage may be among the top two or three commandments that are repeated the most in the Bible. God tells his people to do this over and over and over and over again. And the question is, why does God have to say this so much? Why does God have to repeat this commandment over and over and over again? Well, I submit that the reason why God has to do this over and over and over again is because he knows. He knows people. He knows his people. Jesus knows his people better than anyone else. Would you agree with that? He knows that even as his people, you know what happens to us sometimes? We easily get afraid. We easily get we, we, we get a little paranoid and, and we start fearing what's going on in our society. He knows that so often, even as God's people, we're a little resistant towards suffering and experiencing persecution. You see, so often, instead of embracing suffering and being persecuted for the cause of the gospel, so often we're tempted to want to take that easy path. We want to kind of ride the fence. We want to fit in. We want to keep quiet. We want to stay isolated. We want to avoid rocking the boat in our culture. Jesus knows his people better than anybody else. But notice how here he told the church at Smyrna and by extension, he's telling us that we got to get rid of that kind of attitude. We got to get rid of that mindset. We got to rid ourselves of fear and we got to trust him. We got to be courageous. We got to be relentless and uncompromising when it comes to our beliefs. As our culture gets deeper and deeper into the pits of depravity. As our society gets further and further away from God and his word and godly principles, we can't run. We can't hide. We can't shy away from biblical matters that may make the people in our society angry and hostile and may even make them not want to be our friends anymore. We can't compromise on anything from the Bible. We can't compromise on biblical morality. We can't ever stop practicing church discipline. We can't ever stop promoting the idea that you must be baptized in order to be right with God. We can't ever stop telling people in love that Jesus is not just a way to heaven, but he is the way to heaven. The implication of that is he's the only way to heaven. Jesus said that in John 14 and verse 6. As we keep growing together as a church, it is so important that we always... Plant the seed of courage among us. We need courage as our culture gets further and further away from God. Let's add another seed to this soil. And let's also make sure we always plant the seed of love. We got to have that love that exists among us now. It must always exist among us as God's people. We got to love God, number one. We got to love God with all our heart and all our soul and all our might. And we also got to love each other. We got to love our neighbor as ourselves. We got to love each other as brothers and sisters in Christ in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 21. Do you remember how John emphasized this when he said, "This commandment we have from him that he who loves God, he who loves God should love his brother also." If we love God, if we truly love God, then we will also make sure we love each other. Jesus makes a similar point in John 13. And John 13 and verse 34, Jesus says, Even if I has loved, even if I has loved you, even as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, Jesus says, You will show the world that you're truly my disciples. And then go, go back to 1 Corinthians, because this is interesting. Well, you go back to 1 Corinthians 13. I, I know you're familiar with these verses. There was a time when we had a whole Bible class on this chapter and on these verses, but I just want to reread them if you don't mind. In 1 Corinthians 13, in verse number 4, the Apostle Paul says, Love is patient. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, It is not provoked. does not take into account a wrong suffered. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails. Now here's my question. My question is why in the world does Paul have to even put that there? Well why does Paul have to tell Christians, brethren, Exactly what love demands. Why does Paul have to break this down in such a simplistic way to the Corinthians? Well, the reason is obvious. The reason why he's doing this is because they were not doing it. They were not doing the things that love demands. In fact, I believe that we can safely conclude that their lack of godly love for one another was at the root of many of their problems. It was at the core of many of the issues that was going on at this church. It was at the root of their division and their lack of consideration and their pride and their jealousy and their competition over various spiritual gifts and even their apathy towards a brother that they knew was in immorality with his father's wife, according to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5. You see, when the seed of love is not firmly planted in a church, well, then that church is going to start looking like this. And that church is going to have some serious problems, like the church in Corinth. Then that church is going to give the devil an avenue to go to work. It's going to give the devil an avenue to divide and conquer and cause brethren to be suspicious of one another. And angry with one another and bitter with each other when they don't get their way on a matter of judgment. It's also going to cause brethren to turn a blind eye towards members of their spiritual family that they see in sin. And it's going to cause brethren to run from each other and hide from each other and avoid shaking each other's hands and hugging each other and building strong relationships outside of this church building like we find the Christians doing in the book of Acts. You see, when the seed of love is not planted in the church, There's just so many bad weeds that pop up. But by contrast, when the seed of love is planted, like I believe it is firmly planted here within that church, it's going to have a key ingredient it needs to stay together and grow. Then it's going to have a key ingredient it needs to treat each other in the way that God intends. It's going to have a key ingredient it needs to exercise patience and kindness, and humility, and gentleness, and happiness for the successes of each other. And forgiveness, and service, and assuming the best in each other's words and actions instead of being quick to assume the worst. Love will generate all those kinds of things, and it also It's going to give a church what it needs to deal with the ugly weed of sin. You see, if the seed of love is planted in a church, whenever brethren notice a fellow Christian practicing sin, walking down a path of sin, if they really love them, well, then they're going to hold them accountable. They're going to help them. They're going to throw them a spiritual lifeline. They're going to be motivated to do what Paul says in Galatians 6 and verse 1, where Paul says that if we notice our brother or sister overtaken in a trespass, we who are spiritual ought to restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Real love won't turn a blind eye when we see a brother or sister in sin. Real, genuine love for God's word is a solution to so many problems, so many weeds. That pop up in a local church and we gotta make sure we always plant that seed in this place. We gotta plant truth and we gotta plant unity and courage and love. But can I also close with this? Can I close by saying we gotta make sure we plant the seed of zeal? The seed of zeal. In Titus chapter two. And Titus chapter 2 and verse number 14, I want you to notice what the Apostle Paul says there about Christians there. In Titus chapter 2 and verse number 14, the Apostle Paul wrote these words. He says, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. You know, there's probably at least 150 people here today. And I don't care who you are. I don't care who you are this morning. Everybody here is passionate about something. Everybody here is passionate about something. Now, for some people, they're very passionate about politics. They're passionate about being a Republican. They're passionate about being a Democrat. Some are passionate about grandkids, right? Some are passionate about guns or camping or cars, iPhones, iPads, food, sports. I, for one, can get very passionate about sports. My son is at an age where he's very passionate about sports, very passionate about basketball. He's actually right now playing organized basketball almost every single day. And I told him, there's something wrong with that. There's something wrong with a young boy being passionate about playing his favorite sport, but I also told him that if you can be passionate and zealous about playing a sport that has no eternal value and is really no big deal in the big scheme of life, how much more should you be passionate and zealous about something that is a big deal and does have eternal value in the big scheme of life? How much more so should you be passionate about Jesus? How much more so should you be should you be passionate about God and doing God's work even in the days of your youth? It reminds me of what Jesus said to the church at Laodicea. I'm going to take you to one more verse and we're going to get ready to close. In Revelation chapter three and Revelation chapter three, verse 19, if you remember, the church at Laodicea had all kinds of problems. They thought they were doing fine, but God wasn't pleased with this church at all. They had some serious spiritual issues. In fact, they disturbed and disgusted Jesus so much that he said he wanted to spit them out of his mouth. That's a nice way of saying he wanted to throw up. These people made him want to throw up. He wanted to vomit these people because they were lukewarm. And in verse 19, he tells them what they need to do. He tells them that they they need to stop being deceived about where they are spiritually and they needed to be zealous. Notice the end of verse 19. He says, be zealous and repent. Jesus told these people they needed to be zealous. The implication of that is they were no longer zealous. They were no longer on fire for the Lord. They were just kind of staying along, kind of just going along, being content with whatever progress they thought they had already made spiritually. Jesus says that's not going to cut it with him. That's not good enough. Jesus says that he demands that a church always be zealous and always be on fire for him. He doesn't have time for Christians who are going to be lukewarm. He wants us to be zealous all the time. Being zealous all the time means that as a local body, we're always working. We're always working together. We're always following him together. We're plowing the field together. We're using whatever talents and abilities God has given us to do something together. No one is a spectator. No one is merely just filling a pew. No one is sitting on the sideline while all the other people do the work. No, Jesus says he expects all his people to be zealous for good works. He expects us all to be busy doing something. It could be preaching. It could be teaching. It could be encouraging, praying, mentoring, being active in a work group, practicing hospitality, trying to convert your next door neighbor or your co-worker. Look, there's a lot of different things that need to be done in this field, which is Mona Vista. And we need to be doing them together. We need to be zealous together. We need to understand that if we're going to grow and if we're going to thrive for many years to come, then every single one of us needs to be planting the seed of zeal in this place. And so, here they are. Here are five seeds. We could have put more, but here are five. Five seeds that we got to plant in God's field which is the church. I submit that if we invest ourselves in planting these seeds, the field of the church, particularly the field of this church, where we're members, it won't ever look like the field of that lazy man in Proverbs 24. It won't be neglected, it won't be a mess, it won't be dead, and still it'll be alive. It'll be full of life, full of evangelism, full of passionate worship, full of productivity, full of thriving work for God for decades to come. In fact, over the next couple of months, we're going to talk more about that. We're going to talk about how to water these seeds and how to cultivate them. And then we're going to talk about the produce or the fruit that will come to us as a result, as our theme this year suggests. We're going to talk more about the field, which is the church. But for now, I just want to ask you, are you part of the field? Are you a worker in the field? Are you part of God's spiritual field, which is the church? If you are not part of God's field, then you know what you need to do? You need to get up this morning and do the same thing that people 2,000 years ago did to get part of God's field. You need to believe in Jesus and repent of your sins and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and then get busy doing work for God with us as fellow workers together in this place if there's someone here this morning who needs to respond to the gospel come to the front right now let's stand let's sing together